I have an episode this week. It was supposed to be last week, but some other idea leapt into my head and stole my attention, so I had to follow that to its harebrained conclusion and leave this episode in front of it for another time, and that time is now. Them's the creative breaks. But before we get to that, I kind of wanted to freeform a little bit about writing. Um, God, who knows where this is going to go? Lord willing. <laughs> um, this morning I... I I caught a matinee of Can You Ever Forgive Me? And um, it's always weird for me to see the writer's life depicted on screen because sometimes it's way off. And then other times it has factors in it that really hits home. Um, aside from the performances, which I thought were all great, though um, I'm not sure if Melissa McCarthy is stretching as much as she's toning her screen persona down a squitch. It's just always fucking amazing to see Richard E. Grant anywhere. I mean, God, I have loved that motherfucker. His endearing snakiness and his snarling face since Withnull and I, Withnull, with, Withnull, Withnail, I I can't remember which is which it is. Um, send me a letter, send me straight. You know, with no, with Noel and I, and how to get ahead in advertising, which are just two prime examples of a brilliant '80s com British comedy. Bruce Robinson, baby, at his peak, and Richard E. Grant is punk rock in a suit. He is the British equivalent of a shiv fashioned from a bottle of Merlot and worn as a cravat, right? And Jane Curtin, Jane fucking Curtin is in this fucking movie and why she hasn't had the late career of a Diane Keaton is fucking criminal. We'll be talking about her a little later, but then again, maybe we won't. I don't know. We're riffing here. What got me about this movie is, okay, it's a true story. Melissa McCarthy plays a writer named Lee Israel and Lee, at the beginning of Can You Forgive Me, is a middle-aged, once best-selling biographer who's tumbled out of fashion and at this point is sort of pecking away at a book on Fanny Bryce, who's an historically important comedian, but her existence was about as meaningful in the late 20th century as it is today. No one wants Lee Israel's books. No one cares. She has to eke out a living in mundane jobs she can't stand or keep. And by pawning her stuff with that heartbreaking phony dismissiveness you always take to the pawn shop when you're broke and proud. You know, where you just say, oh, it's just so much clutter. When it's not clutter, it's your life and you're surrendering it against your will. And um, while researching Fanny Bryce at a library, she stumbles upon uh, a couple of typewritten letters from Fanny tucked inside an old book. And she realizes, Oh, I can sell these. I can pay my rent, have a few drinks and take care of my old cat. So she steals the letters and tries to sell them. And when she's told the letters are kind of mundane and therefore not worth as much as she hopes they are worth, 
she spices one up by rolling the actual letter into a typewriter and adding a postscript in Fanny Bryce's voice. You know, now it has this zinger everyone wants. It's worth something. And so begins a little industry, typing up phony letters from famous dead authors, forging their signatures, baking the paper to quote-unquote agent, and selling it. And this is how you know she's a good writer. She's naturally funny and can easily appropriate each writer's rhythms and, um, well, briefly fool sellers and collectors. And that, that's, that's both her talent and her problem. She can fake Noel Coward. She can fake Dorothy Parker. Um, like her biographies, she can hide behind her subjects and never wants to reveal herself. And in life, she kind of keeps that distance from other people, too. And, um, oh, where was I? Oh, writing, writing. It's, it was kind of disturbing to me that I recognized the squalor in which Lee Israel was living. Um, there's a great scene where she complains enough about a mysterious fly infestation in her apartment that an exterminator stops by. <laughs> he opens the door. He's attacked by this acrid stench of filth and decay, and it's so bad he can't enter the apartment, which which forces Lee and her friend Jack Hook, and Jack Hook is played by Richard E. Grant, and he's exactly the kind of pal you want when you're a, a dreg-surfing barfly. And together they work to clean this place up. And uh, we see it's this dung heap of dirty dishes, carnivorous dust bunnies, fossilized meat, and acres upon acres of cat shit under a bed. And I'm ashamed to admit I've lived in such conditions. Like, I kept my 37th birthday cake in my refrigerator until I was 45, and after a surprise inspection, was ejected from my townhouse. And, uh, yeah. Right now, in fact, I'm looking at a partially collapsed bookshelf. It fell two nights ago. And right now, I'm sitting at my table, and I'm thinking, God... What a goddamn shame this is. I'll get to it this weekend. But first, a movie. Then lunch. Then a long walk. Then another long walk. Then, oh God, wow, what a nap. Then dinner time. Then it's time to podcast. And meanwhile, I've got this pile of books on the floor that look like the... Dead at Gettysburg. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Sadly, I also recognize the distance from people that Lee has. I, I hate it, but I recognize it. Um, I'm friendlier, I think, than Lee Israel. And a little less vulgar. But... In most conversations, I feel like I'm trapped in a burning room 
when suddenly I see an open window and I don't care that it's a 12-story drop. I'm nodding and chuckling empathetically, but inside I'm either fishing for an appropriate concluding sentiment or I'm waiting for you to shut the fuck up so I can return to the safety of my innermost thoughts. I mean, there you are, yammering some bullshit, while I'm nursing seven carefully calibrated sentences that I may or may not write down at some point. Because even when I'm not visibly writing, physically writing, I'm writing. I can't shut it off. When I'm not talking, rest assured, I'm in my head, drowning in concepts or violently Rolodexing. Nope. 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 Yes. Nope. Definitely. Maybe. Was that an Oasis reference just then? Yes. Nope. Nope. Don't get me wrong. I love people. I do love people. I just don't think you always need to be around. Or talking. I love words too much to let them die in the air like gas. The, the funny thing about Lee Israel is that while she's engaged in this criminal enterprise, selling forged correspondence like a boss, she becomes a nicer person. She's happy. In a way, her writing is now being validated because people are reading it excitedly and going, wow, this is really good. This is really clever stuff. And it's got to be a compliment when someone reads a letter purportedly written by someone as great as Dorothy Parker, and they're exulting over its authenticity when it's actually you pretending to be Dorothy Parker, right? I'm on Dorothy's level. Maybe I'm even a better Dorothy. You fooled people who are supposed to be experts in this field. And at the same time, it's got to be frustrating as hell because every writer wants to be recognized. I, I kind of think that applies to editors too because sometimes I get angry when a reporter is lauded for a story that I, I spend an hour and a half reworking into something presentable. You know, yeah, it may be a good story, but it's a good story because I greased its joints and took a fucking shovel to it. Anyway, enough of, enough of my bitterness. Okay, back to Lee. It, the jig is soon up. The jig is soon up for Lee. Lee is real, and she's caught easily because, and by the FBI even. <laughs> God, FBI. I guess does the FBI have a literary division. Anyway, as great as she is at mimicking dead authors. She's kind of sloppy when it comes to the times in which these letters would allegedly have been written. 
For example, without giving anything away, in one instance, she makes one writer far more bold in a letter than he would actually have been. And uh, Lee's arrested. She's given a slap on the wrist. She's forced to pay restitution. And she ends up doing what she should have done in the first place. She writes a book in her own voice, albeit about her crimes. Uh, <laughs> and of course, it becomes a critically acclaimed title. And later, as evidenced by a little me with my feed bag noshing popcorn in the dark, it's a motion picture. And um, the real Liz Lee Israel is dead now. But um, in the end, she achieved every writer's ultimate fucking dream. Immortality. She is Noel Coward. She is Dorothy Parker. So here's to you, Lee, from one brooding writer to another. Salute. Now, on with the episode. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm standing outside the Circle K at the corner of uh, Marion and Queen. And um, as you can tell from the video I uploaded about four hours ago to the Keep Albany Safe Facebook page, there has been no suspicious activity since I checked the scanner about seven hours ago and saw about three cop cars in the parking lot. Um, all I've seen really since then is um, little Debbie's truck full of mini donuts. It's uh, still in the parking lot now. I don't know if it has uh, any relation to the um, Red Bull van that is also in the parking lot. Otherwise, it's just kind of uh, business as usual out here. Um, though I have seen the same guy um, in a pair of uh, gray sweatpants. He's uh, come in and out about three times and he always seems to buy uh, what I, I take to be a hot dog. It's in one of those it's in one of those packages. It seems kind of smushy. Um, uh, like I said, uh, no real activity to speak of. Oh hey Travis! Hey, Trav, man, what's up, man? What's up, bro? Oh, you know, man, I'm just making that paper like I do, motherfucker. Hey, what'd you say to Arrow last night, man? Arrow. You know, Arrow. I don't know, man. She came home pretty pissed last night, bro. I think you should hit her up later and find out what happened. Because she's like, she's like a ratchet little bitch, man. Running her mouth all morning long. And I don't want to get in the middle of whatever you got going on. But hey, man. Hey, take it easy, man. I'm on Insta, man. Hit me up, bro. Hey, not you. Now, fuck you, man. Who the fuck? You, get your fucking hands off me. God damn. Anyway, back to you, Jeremy. And it's 1985. Good morning.
You know what's funny about John Belushi? Most of my memories of him involve being jostled from the deepest sleep. Except for one time. They always take place in the dark. Whittier, California, 1978. I was very young then, but not too young to remember. I'm in my 1978 bed, 1978 dreams, in my 1978 head. There's a hand on my arm, pushing ever gently. Wake up! Wake up! It's my dad. He wants me to see something right now. I'm hustled to the living room, which glows in the light of matching suits. Two men, fedoras, Ray-Ban wayfarers, sunglasses, model rb 2 one, four, zero. One man's tall, the other man's squat, but he's obviously in charge. He twirls a key on a chain in his right hand, like he's skulking blocks between felonies. And when stop mid-swing, this key unlocks a briefcase, frees a harmonica, and now we get down to business. A lot of cool wandering as a band shakes loose, puttering, shuddering into a tightened up lockdown. Then, boom! They hit that pocket. There it is, and these suave dudes go crazy late. The spirit of 67 coming to you on a dusty road, live from New York on a Saturday night. These were the Blues Brothers, Joliet Jake and Elwood Blues. But even as a young boy, at the age of five, I knew that wasn't true. Even I knew they were a couple of actors, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, who, yes, were actually famous enough to penetrate the Lutheran private school swing set four-square barrier. I had never seen an episode of Saturday Night Live. (laughs) To be fair, I didn't have to. My dad never missed it. 
He'd strut through the house crying, Cheebugger, 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 cheebugger. What do you want to drink? No Coke, Pepsi. You want fries, little fry? No fries, cheeps. It was funny, but I had no idea what he was talking about. We seldom had cheebugger for dinner anyhow. There was a time I stole some cheeseburger money off my mom, but Leo Provost, down the street, hauled my happy ass home before I could reach McDonald's, where in the late 1970s, I could have cheeseburgered my brains out on a $20 bill. My dad loved Saturday Night Live. That was his generation, finally on television. He was a kid of the 60s, the kind of guy who splayed between speakers as Led Zeppelin's You Shook Me, zigzag from channel to channel. The kind of guy who made his own posters reading. Suppose they gave a war and nobody came. The kind of guy who got yelled at for playing Rust Never Sleeps at volumes that awaken the dead. He preferred the later Beatles to the early ones. His favorite Beatle was George, but his favorite not ready for primetime player, John. John was an expert at my dad's favorite style of comedy. Loud and physical with a bachelor's degree in the slow burn. It didn't get any better for my dad than Ralph Cramden boiling volcanic exploding in a roar of vowels as Ed Norton ran for cover. So Dad loved Belushi's weatherman character, whose forecasts on SNL's Weekend Update segment would somehow escalate from meteorology-related parables to other, less suitable subjects like drug smuggling and angry Irish dope dealers. And he'd get worked up to the point of incoherence, swatting violently at interruptions until the force of his tirades 
flung him to the floor. Dad also loved his samurai. All top volume, guttural gibberish, and wild swordplay. His Incredible Hulk was pretty good, too. He was less like a superhero and more like a good-time dude you knew in school. John could be Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton. And he was also so much more. Because my dad liked John Belushi, I liked John Belushi. He was something we shared. Anyone who could reduce my father, my hero, to hysterics had to be someone to admire. I imagined us both meeting him and the two of them hitting it off, becoming friends. Then I could tell everyone I knew John Belushi. He came to our house for dinner, told us stories, made us laugh, and always promised to come back. But the closest we got was a copy of Briefcase Full of Blues, the official Blues Brothers album, which never left the stereo. I didn't know it at the time, but that was in earnest the beginning of my musical education. Where I learned about Sam and Dave, King Floyd, Otis Redding, Big Joe Turner, The Chips, The Downchild Blues Band, and especially the Stax Records sound, as developed by two members of the Blues Brothers' own band, guitarist Steve Cropper and bassist Donald Duck Dunn. But you can't really talk about the Blues Brothers without talking about Dan Aykroyd. He was the catalyst, a sponge, an encyclopedia. It was he who introduced his friend John Belushi to the blues. And to John's credit, he embraced it with all his heart. Together they helped revive it and honored its history at the same time.
They were protective of the Blues Brothers themselves, establishing them as entities separate from themselves. They were created by Saturday Night Live performers, but they were not Saturday Night Live characters. They had no catchphrases. They appeared in no sketches. They never wore out their welcome. They came, they played, and they left. Which makes their eventual motion picture all the more remarkable. 1980s The Blues Brothers was the first SNL film. It's also the best because it understands what a movie should be. It's confidently cinematic. There's action, mayhem, and music with the entire city of Chicago, Illinois as its willing playground. And it purposely deprives the audience of its central union by delaying it for as long as it can. For the first few minutes, you do not see Jake or Elwood together. You don't even see their faces. Then, when finally you do, neither man is in the same frame. My dad took me to see the Blues Brothers when it came out. And I'm telling you, during that opening burst of She Caught the Katie, when first you see Elwood, and then you see Jake, and the two men traverse a big screen distance to embrace, that was the most thrilling sequence of my young life. By this point, neither John Belushi nor Dan Aykroyd remained on Saturday Night Live. The original Not Ready for Primetime Players had disbanded for better things, some better than others. John was a bona fide movie star. He'd done Jack Nicholson's Going South. He'd been part of an ensemble led by Talia Shire in Old Boyfriends. He'd struck pay dirt in National Lampoon's Animal House as John Bluto Blutarski, who may have spent seven years in college, 
but drove into a sunset as a future senator. He reprised the character in fighter pilot form for Steven Spielberg's expensively hubristic 1941, but let's not go there. Despite whatever reviews hounded his filmography, no one denied that John Belushi of Wheaton, Illinois, high school football star, promising young thespian, and gifted improviser, was a versatile actor at home in either drama or comedy. Everyone talks about that scene in the Blues Brothers where he removes his ever-present sunglasses, his armor, revealing his naked gaze for the first and only time in the film. He uses his eyes to implore and charm, then beg, then seduce, then coldly abandon. He summons a vulnerable but reptilian depth in a character first developed to sing old R&B numbers on television. As much as I love the Blues Brothers, my favorite John Belushi is newspaperman Ernie Sochak in Continental Divide. Here, John gets to play a romantic lead and a variation on Chicago news columnist Mike Royko, who had followed Belushi's career since the younger man's stint at Second City. It also gets John out of a metropolis and into the less familiar environs of Mother Nature. He's appealing here. Funny. Charming. Free of the beast most audiences demanded. It's a side, unfortunately, we'd never see again. My last memory of John Belushi. Except for one time, they always take place in the dark. This is that one time. Albany, Oregon, 1982. I was still young then, but I'll never forget. I'm in my bed, psyching myself up for another day at school. I hear my father in my parents' bedroom. The radio is on. He's getting ready for work. Then I hear him come down the hall. There's a hand on my arm, 
pushing ever gently. Wake up. Wake up. He needs to tell me something right now. I just heard on the radio, he says. John Belushi's dead. I was still young then. Not even ten. When people died, I thought... It was because they were killed in some tragic circumstance. Or because they were old. I knew nothing of drugs. I knew nothing of chemicals and powders you could pound into your body on purpose. That your wearied system could conspire to shut you down. That it could take your sleep when you were at your most defenseless and unsuspecting and cocoon you in it forever. Knowing what I know about John Belushi now After all the books, the merchandising, the retrospectives, not to mention a really shitty movie Michael Chiklis would probably like to forget, and one I wish I'd never paid full price to see while my aunt took my cousins to parenthood, I refuse to not love him as much as I once did. I refuse to regard him as an exemplar of excess because his memory deserves better than cheap symbolism or easy metaphor. It saddens me that when I watch his movies, he lives in this universe of dominant colors, dark teak, bruised velvet, gritty greens that no longer inhabit reality existing only in distant dreams he has no access to this world where I sit at three o'clock in the morning on his 70th birthday a milestone he undershot by 37 years I never knew him I never could have known him but I miss him It's stupid, but I miss him.
Wake up. Wake up.